0: from PRX
1: Today on Studio 360
0: Good morning honey
2: She showed me that there was a way to feel pain and to transform it into
1: art. The brilliance and miseries of Billie Holiday.
2: You don't have to know anything about her life to feel the kind of pain and tragedy that embodies her music.
1: Remembering the album Lady Sings the Blues
0: With the dawn
1: Plus, the composer Eric Whitaker has won Grammys and conducted all over the world, but he says he'd give all that up to become a roadie.
3: I'm still frankly waiting for Depeche Mode to call me. Even if they don't need a keyboard player, they've got to need somebody to carry their suitcases around. I'm here.
1: A whole hour today about great singing, alone and in harmony, right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This was Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done.
4: Editing is all about timing.
3: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right?
4: Studio 360.
3: It's Kurt Anderson.
1: If you ever sang in a choir, at church, or even chanted at a football game, you know how good it can feel to add your voice to a wall of live human sound. I caught that bug at 13 when I was briefly in a chorus, And I was reminded of that stint recently, thought maybe I should have stuck with it longer when I spoke with a guy who is reinventing the choral music genre. Among real choir nerds, Eric Whitaker is the contemporary rock star. He's a classical music phenom. He's probably created some of the most popular choral music since, I don't know, J.S. Bach. He has won a Grammy. He has served as composer in residence in England at Cambridge University and in Los Angeles at the L.A. Master Chorale. But this being the 21st century, his biggest audience has come online. He has created and conducted virtual choirs, which are these really cool things with thousands of people all over the world, digitally connected, of course, singing in unison from wherever they are. And online, the virtual choir videos have gotten more than 10 million views so far. He got the idea from a teenager on Long Island.
3: So this young woman named Britlin Losey uploaded a video of herself to YouTube. Singing just the soprano part to a piece that I'd written called Sleep. It was kind of a fan video that she made to me. I saw it and I had this idea that if I could get other people around the world to do what she's doing, sit alone in their room and sing their part, but sing it in the exact same tempo, and then they all uploaded this to YouTube and we started all those videos at the same time, it would have to make a choir, it would have to make a virtual choir. And so we tried it. Uh, the, the, the hardest part was getting them to sing together. So I uploaded a track of my own with me conducting so that each singer would follow it.
1: And, and do you use every video that people upload or do you pick and choose?
3: Every single video. There's no audition process. The first video that we made had 185 singers from 12 different countries. And it went viral. We've since done Virtual Choir Two, Virtual Choir Three, which had nearly 4,000 singers from 73 countries. So you're like a cult leader now. (laughs) No. No, 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 no. um...
1: And now that you've done it three times, is the experience of having done the others, has it led you to write the fourth one differently, and what's it going to (laughs) be?
3: Yes. Yes, radically different. So not only will, for the first time, are we going to use a click track for the recording, Uh, so that we can even further line up the singers. But I've changed the text that I'm using. So, for instance, the second one that we did, Sleep, which had beautiful poetry by poet Charles Anthony Silvestri, meditated on this word sleep over and over and over. Well, you can imagine sleep, sleep. You've got 2,000 people all doing that S at the same time. It's a a nightmare trying to line up and clean up the audio for that. So Virtual Choir 4 will have no consonants and certainly no sibilants. Um, and then the click track, we're going to this time add an electronica component so that there's electronic dance music underneath it. And then that will be open for DJs around the world to remix so that we're going to try to open the project to other kinds of musicians as well to be a part of it.
1: How interesting and smart. And choral music is different than music for instrumental groups in a lot of ways. One of them being that there are lots more community and church choirs and amateur choral singers and novice groups – when you compose, imagining that that all kinds of groups will sing your music, do you keep that in mind that these aren't all going to be professional singers?
3: I do absolutely. I'm consciously aware of every note that I write that somebody somewhere is going to be trying to deal with this. And one of the things that I'll do as a composer is I'll sing through all of the lines—the soprano lines, the alto lines, tenor lines. Even though I'm not such a great singer, I'll, I'll sing through them just to see, do they feel singable? Do they feel ergonomic to the voice? And also, do, are they a pleasure to sing? Is it something, you know, I try to imagine this alto somewhere in the world, just enjoying her part, saying, yeah, that, that feels nice.
1: So you really are kind of a, it seems like, hardwired populist, despite your Juilliard training and Cambridge University residency and all these hoity-toity parts of your of your resume
3: yeah I suppose so.
1: and speaking of populism, you grew up in the 1980s and, and i'm I am told that you are still a big 80s English pop rock fan and listen to still listen to Duran Duran and Depeche Mode.
3: <laughs> just this morning, I was listening to to Duran Duran Depeche Mode. <laughs> I'm still frankly waiting for Depeche Mode to call me. I yeah. I know even if they don't need a keyboard player, they they've got to need somebody to carry their suitcases around. I'm here favorite songs. Uh yeah, well in fact one of my all-time favorite songs is the Depeche Mode 1990 single Enjoy the Silence. And I've arranged it for my choir. We're we're going to premiere it for the first time on on this East Coast tour that we're, that really? we're doing next week.
1: I may have to go just to hear that because to me <laughs> Depeche Mode 20 years 30 years later and Duran Duran for that matter, eh, come across as a little cheesy sometimes.
3: I know, but the the thing is, you know, like any good standard it's it's all about the melody and the uh-huh. lyrics uh-huh. and some of these songs, they're I think they're dated because they're using '80s synths and drum machines. Mm-hmm. But the songs themselves are poignant and genuinely, genuinely moving. I personally feel like I can hear '80s pop in my, <laughs> even in my, you know my the slow, luscious choral works. And also, I know some of my pieces. If I just sit at the piano and play them bare bones and play them in the style of '80s pop, that you can really hear the influence of Depeche Mode in there.
1: And you you say you're not a good singer, but you started singing in college. Tell me about that and how that led to what you now do.
3: I did. Um, I was 18 years old. I was a freshman at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And a friend of mine said that I should join choir because there were a lot of cute girls in the soprano section. And I had seen choirs in high school. I thought they were the biggest geeks in the world. There was no way I was going to do this. But then they also said that there was this free trip to Mexico at the end of the year in the choir. And I thought, okay, for girls in Mexico, I could do it. And on the very first day of rehearsal, we sang the Kyrie from the Requiem by Mozart. And 50 minutes later, I I left that room, a completely utterly transformed human being it, it, it changed my life completely. That was your aha
1: moment. Let's play a little bit of the, of the Kyrie from, from Mozart's Requiem. And I want you to explain to me what struck you about singing it and, and, and transformed you. And feel Do you want free- me to talk
3: while the music is happening? Absolutely. Okay. Okay, so right away, the basses are singing, so that was me. Here comes the altos. This is called a fugue. So there's a subject and a counter subject. Now the sopranos get the subject again. Tenors get the counter subject. So now you've got four parts. It's like this cosmic Swiss watch. It's this impossibly elegant, delicate, brilliant motor that that is happening in three dimensions around you in the room. And it's intoxicating. I'll never forget that first day, it was happening around me and in my body, and I started giggling, and then I started trembling, and finally I, I had tears in my eyes. Just the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. knew was I just needed more of it so I joined mm-hmm. the Men's Glee Club I joined the Chamber Choir I became president of the Choir Social Club I just inundated myself with it and then in my third year when I was 21 years old I decided to write my very first piece and a, a little piece called Go Lovely Rose as a gift to this conductor who had changed my life and then that piece was published and then I wrote another piece called Cloudburst and that piece was published and I I sort of woke up one day and was a a, a choral composer
1: And had you studied uh, composition in, in college?
3: Uh, not at all, really. It, I, I really didn't study composition in my undergraduate degree. I did a little bit, but I did a seven-year undergraduate degree. Uh, frankly, for the first four or five years, it, <laughs> I could barely read music. And so a lot of it was just by ear and trial by error. And then finally, when I did my master's degree at the Juilliard School, that's when I had some real proper study with John right. Corleano.
1: One sound that that comes up a lot in your music is something that i've learned is called a tone cluster which is when the voices are are singing a chord but there's this hint of dissonance um, i want to play an example from your your piece oculi omnium to to illustrate this um, can you explain to us what a tone cluster is
3: yeah so normally there's a triad dum 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 and any note that's included from the scale that's not in that triad starts to turn it into a cluster. What I tend to do is I tend to load those things up in my music. So um, I might use, let's say, a scale actually coming up. This is a great example of a tone cluster here. So basically you've got seven notes of a scale there and each of the notes are being held by a different group of singers in the choir. To me, it creates this shimmer, this uh, harmonic cloud over the top of the music. To me, it sounds like the the music is resolving and suspending at the same time. It, it's moving at the speed of light and not going anywhere.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And it, it's just my favorite sound in all the world, and I fill my music with it. It's,
1: yes, <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah. Despite your education and your erudition, you are not a snob. You write this beautiful, romantic, cinematic music. You have this great uh, radio voice. You, you are, uh, you know, a beautiful man. Let's be frank. Um, uh, with his long blonde hair, could appear on, on romance book covers. Um, th- does that package ever do you think hurt you professionally? Make you make people think oh, this guy can't be serious? <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh God. No, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Like, like I told you, I, I just try to do what I do as honestly and genuinely as I possibly can and then hope that the music finds its way.
1: Do people ever uh, criticize you, hate on you for being too romantic?
3: Yeah, sometimes you hear that, you know, especially from the hardcore establishment. But, you know, what, what are you going to do? It's, um, I, I just try to write music that I think is honest. And after that, I guess it'll always be critics.
1: Um, but people in the classical music world are always moaning worriedly about the aging of the audience. Uh, you, you seem not to have that problem. You're, your audiences are younger than the average. Is that not right?
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, For instance, on my Facebook fan page, the vast majority of people are 18 to 30 years old. Part of that has to do with Uh, some of my music is popular in the educational world. So uh, it's performed in high schools and colleges. It's
1: kind of the glee effect.
3: Yeah, exactly. And and then part of it is I think that I try to be incredibly approachable on the web. So I've got a real Facebook and YouTube and Twitter presence. And I answer as many people as I possibly can personally. I, I think then younger people get talking and say, hey, this isn't so dusty.
1: Well, it sounds like what you're doing, entirely apart from the music, uh, is is something that the the classical music world could learn from. And I'm wondering, is is some next step for you to to run a symphony orchestra somewhere? Oh, wow.
3: Um, Yeah, something like that might be interesting, actually, now that you mention it. Weirdly, I'm starting to do more and more guest conducting of orchestras, and I I adore it. Mm -hmm. But I think... In a way, it's a little too limiting just being on, in that one orchestra. To me, the more exciting venue is the internet. And I think with the virtual choir, for instance, we're trying as hard as we can to push the technology so that very I'm hoping very soon we'll be able to sing in real time. At the TED conference two weeks ago, I closed the the conference with 100 live singers on stage, but then 32 people live beaming in from 32 different countries over Skype and it worked there was a less than half a second delay uh, from from the live musicians so my hope is that very soon you know i'll be able to pull out my iphone 8 in grand central station and start conducting beethoven 9 and a thousand people can just join in on their lunch hour from their phones
1: and you'll be running planet earth symphony orchestra I guess. <laughs> yeah
3: eric whitaker thank you very much it is truly an honor thank you Kurt.
1: I spoke with Eric Whitaker in 2013. Since then, he's completed Virtual Choir 4 with singers from 101 countries and composed the music for the film Deep Field. Here is that cover of Depeche Mode's Enjoy the Silence he was talking about.
0: Coming up. My days have grown so lonely.
1: Lady sings the blues. What's
2: lurking under that is a deeply passionate life and somebody who is struggling to maintain their humanity and their dignity in the face of oppression, sexism, you know, even within jazz.
1: Giving Billie Holiday her due. That's next on Studio 360.
0: 360.
1: For our series called This Woman's Work, we collaborate with the British-based outfit classic album Sundays to highlight important music by female performers. Billie Holiday died 60 years ago this week. And today, we're looking at her album, Lady Sings the Blues. It came out in 1956. She was only 41, but had been performing since she was a kid. And success hadn't exactly led to Easy Street for her. You can hear the worn, slightly ragged edge in her voice on the album, sounding all the world wearier and still dazzling. Colleen Cosmo-Murphy has the story of Lady
4: Sings the Blues. Billie Holiday remains one of the greatest jazz voices of all time and is still easily recognizable to music fans from all generations.
0: Lady Sings the Blues She's got them men she feels
4: so sad. The musicians and clubs of New York City were integral to the development of jazz. In the 1940s, bebop was born in the Big Apple with artists like Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, and Dizzy Gillespie. The 1950s saw the development of hard bop with Sonny Rollins and Art Blakey, the cool jazz of Miles Davis, and later the free jazz of Ornette Coleman and later John Coltrane, explored in downtown Manhattan venues like the Five Spot. But vocal innovator and world-famous Billie Holiday was unable to perform at these notable jazz clubs in the 1950s as her cabaret card had been revoked due to narcotics charges. So instead, she brought jazz to the mainstream by performing at a major concert venue, Carnegie Hall, in
0: 1956. There ain't nothing I ever do Oh,
4: nothing I ever say. She once said of her style, If I'm going to sing like someone else, then I don't need to sing at all. In 1958, Frank Sinatra told Ebony magazine, With few exceptions, every major pop singer in the U.S. during her generation has been touched in some way by her genius. It is Billie Holiday who was, and still remains, the greatest single musical influence on me. She has also had a profound impact on contemporary artists, including Jose James, a singer who has beautifully bridged the worlds of jazz and hip-hop for over a decade since the release of his debut album The Dreamer I saw
5: The dreamer
4: In 2015, James recorded a tribute album to Billie Holiday covering his favorite songs on the album, Yesterday I Had the Blues, the music of Billie Holiday for the legendary Blue Note records.
2: When I found Billie Holiday, it really matched my teenage angst in a deep way. Not in a superficial way, you know, not in like I'm a loner and I'm against the world, but she showed me that there was a way to feel pain and to transform it into art. You don't have to know anything about her life to feel the kind of pain and tragedy that embodies her music wholly.
4: Likewise, British singer, actress, and former cabaret act Paloma Faith rates Lady Day as one of the most influential artists in her own upbringing.
6: I know we try, pretend that this will work out, but... Lately acting's just no good Maybe we're
4: loyal Maybe we're not yeah, we She relayed how Billy was a unifying force at one of my classic album Sunday's events. So my
6: mother and father's music taste was always really conflicting, just like their whole relationship. Mm. But, <laughs> but this was the one person that I listened to in both households. I would say that for me, like, she was the holy grail of how I wanted to be able to sing. And what I didn't realise as a young person, sort of trying to copy, is that you can't sing like that until some bad shit's happen to you.
0: Some other spring I'll try to love Now I
4: still cling to faith Assembled from recordings from 1954 and 1956, Lady Sings the Blues was released at the same time as Billie Holiday's autobiography of the same name. To uh, make a long story short, my husband, when
0: we were talking, and people had been writing things about me and getting them all wrong and all screwed up. I won't mention the newspapers or the magazines, bless them. So my husband said... Why don't you write a
4: book and tell your side? The book was ghostwritten by the New York Post's William Dufty and astonishingly rarely mentions her singing, but instead focuses upon the heartbreaking story of her life. Born Eleanor Fagan, Holiday started working when she was six, and dropped out of school in the fifth grade and ran errands at a whorehouse. At the age of 12, she left her hometown of Baltimore and moved to Harlem with her mother, who worked as a prostitute. Billy became a prostitute herself, and later both she and her mother were arrested. But despite these obstacles, at the age of 17, she was discovered by record producer John Hammond, who arranged her recording debut with bandleader Benny Goodman, Billie was on her way to stardom. By the late 1940s, Billie Holiday was a household name who had worked with some of the greats like Count Basie and Duke Ellington. And she had been the first black woman to sing with a white orchestra when she toured with Artie Shaw.
0: Any old time you want me, I am yours. For just the asking, darling, any old time you need me,
2: she was the biggest black entertainer in the world. She was in the paper all the time. She was the highest paid. She was the Beyonce of her time, or rather Beyonce is the Billy Holiday of our time, you know?
4: But by the 1950s, Billie was also a regular feature in the tabloid press for the wrong reasons, her drug abuse and her drinking, and her relationships with abusive men.
0: He treats me awfully Each time that we meet it's just a for how that boy can cheat, but I must
4: have that man. Billie Holiday's health deteriorated, and so did her voice, especially by the time she recorded Lady Sings the Blues. But for many artists like Paloma Faith, her pain is what made her voice so evocative.
6: Billie Holiday, she had an absolutely horrific life. Mm which is probably why she could sing so amazingly well. This was an album that I used to just like lay on the floor as a kid with my eyes closed and listen to and absorb. And just being a good singer is not enough. Like if anything, it's sort of secondary to
4: having a voice
6: and having something to
4: say. She didn't have a musical education and developed her own sophisticated delivery and tone. She found inspiration by imitating musical instruments, especially the saxophone sounds of her great friend and soulmate, Lester Young.
2: He would listen to her records for ideas, and she would do the same. She really phrased like a sax player, and you can hear that immediately. And I was immediately struck by how she reharmonizes and changes the melodic line and the phrasing on anything she does. That first line of "Body and Soul," my days have grown, have grown so lonely. lonely.
0: For you I cry, for you the only
2: which already just tells you everything because the original's da da, da 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 da, you know. And she's just floating on top of it. You know, she kind of gets this reputation for being so laid back and behind the beat, but she's also crossing bar lines and anticipating chords. And what I mean is that she'll sing a note for a chord that hasn't been played yet, and she'll let it hang there. Miles Davis um, and all the kind of modern guys, they kind of get a lot of credit for that stuff, but they also listen to Billy. You know, Billy's sort of like the wellspring of a how-to manual to do all the hip, cool stuff. Um, When you sing along with Billy, you realize, oh, wow, the breath control, the technique, the ideas, the, the bravery. She was completely fearless behind the microphone.
4: Billy is, of course, praised for her voice, but she was also a songwriter. And she co-wrote two songs on Lady Sings the Blues, the title track and a song that would become one of her signatures.
0: Mama may God bless the child. Let's got his own.
4: Let's got his own. Not only did Billy have problems with men, but she also had difficulties with her mother, who had borrowed enormous amounts of money from her daughter to fund her restaurant, Mom Holidays. When Billy fell on financial hard times, she needed the favor returned. She once recounted, I needed some money one night, and I knew Mom was sure to have some, so I walked in the restaurant like a stockholder and asked, Mom turned me down flat. She wouldn't give me a cent. They argued and Holiday shouted, God bless the child that's got his own, and stormed out and went down to the club for a show.
2: You know, according to legend, she sat down, with the piano player and they just wrote it right then and there and started performing it. I really wish Billy had lived longer because she was such an incredible songwriter. There's something so direct and so clear in the way that she talks, but it's like so deep as well. You hear, God bless the child that's got his own. You, You know exactly what she's talking about. She was like folks and she was also like extremely sophisticated.
4: God Bless the Child was one of Billie Holiday's eight new recordings of some of her biggest hits featured on her 1956 album, Lady Sings the Blues. The album also featured four new songs, including a poignant song, I Thought About You, a song that Jose James chose to cover on his tribute album, Yesterday I Had the Blues, the music of Billie Holiday.
2: I took a
5: trip on a train And I thought about you.
2: I just love how it's like a monologue. Somebody once said, you know, like Billie Holiday and like Abby Lincoln and all her sort of disciples, they were like great actresses doing a one woman show. A song like I Thought About You, I love that kind of writing because you're saying, you know, I took a trip on a train. And it's sort of this like response, like a, a side, and I thought about you, you know. I passed the shadowy lane, and I thought about it. And it just kind of goes deeper and deeper.
0: I passed the shadowy lane And I thought about you Two or three cars Parked under the
2: stars. And I love that it's a song about a private moment. When I was younger, it was romantic. You know, was, oh, oh, obviously, I thought about you as somebody from the past and you messed up and now you're on this train and you're thinking about, okay. And then it was like, you know what? You, capital Y, I thought about you. The you could also be yourself, your younger self, or your ideal self, or the self that you thought you were going to be when you were young, and now you're that age.
0: At every stop that we made, oh, I thought about you.
4: Even though it looked like Billie Holiday was on top of her game in terms of her professional life, what was happening behind the scenes played out very differently, not only personally, but also professionally. Imagine what Billie Holiday went through back in the 1940s and 1950s. She received lower wages than her male counterparts. She wasn't permitted to perform on a bandstand and wasn't given the same privileges at hotels in the South because she was black. She was heckled with audience members shouting degrading racist and sexist bile. And Billie Holiday certainly didn't receive the proper artistic credit she was due.
0: Good morning, heartache. You old loomisake. Good morning, heartache. Thought we said goodbye last night. One of
4: the highlights on Lady Sings the Blues is the song "Good Morning, Heartache."
2: What's lurking under that is a deeply passionate life, and, and somebody who is struggling to maintain their humanity and their dignity. In the face of oppression, sexism, you know, even within jazz, I don't think Billie Holiday really got her due as an innovator.
0: It seems I met you when my love went away Now every day I start by saying to you Good morning, Holly, what's new?
2: We hear a song like Good Morning Heartache. When I first heard it, it meant like romantic love, of course, you know, like, okay, another another man left her or something. But now when I, when I listen to it, I hear the weight of the world. I hear the weight of waking up in the morning as an entertainer, as an artist of color, as a woman, thinking, okay, here we go again. There's a whole long history of how the male genius and the female genius are compared you know when we have the Miles Davis when we have the Kurt Cobain when we have the the guy who's on drugs and he's falling apart but oh it's he's so tragic and he's he's a genius you know he's burning it, he's Pablo Picasso you know it's all in service to the art but then when we have the Billie Holiday's or the Amy Winehouse it's they're falling apart and they can't keep a man and you know it's so tragic and oh the drugs you know what I mean
4: and now we get to the song that Billie originally recorded in 1939 and that she re-recorded for this album, Lady Sings the Blues.
0: Southern trees bear strange fruit Blood on the leaves
6: and blood at the root
4: Paloma Faith.
6: For me, the greatest song ever written, without a shadow of a doubt,
4: is Strange Fruit. This is a song that became synonymous with Billie's musical career.
6: It's really emotional, and it was written by a Jewish teacher. And obviously, there's a history behind that as well, because the experience of Jewish people then being sung by, in the voice of a black woman living through some horrific division...
4: Strange Fruit was originally a poem written by Jewish-American teacher and songwriter Abel Mirapol to protest lynchings of African-Americans. Mirapol and his wife had adopted Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's sons after their parents were executed in 1953. His poem was later set to music, and Holiday made it a regular part of her live performances. As a song, it was so controversial that Holiday's record label, Columbia Records, didn't allow her to record it as they were fearful of retaliation.
0: The bulging eyes
6: and the twisted mouth The lyrics are directly about the way that black people were treated in America. The KKK hanging them from trees
4: and they are the strange fruit. Columbia Records released her from the contract for just this song. She recorded it under the pet name given to her by her friend Lester Young and recorded it as Lady Day for another label, Commodore Records. It sold a million copies, which must have annoyed Columbia Records. The poetry of the song is
6: just breathtaking.
4: I I get
6: tearful talking about it, get tearful listening to it, and it never gets old. It's like... For me, nothing will ever stop that being a painful thought that human beings could do that to each other. The song's timeless. Here is
0: a fruit for the crows to pluck.
4: Such was the power of this song that Atlantic Records co-founder Ahmed Erdogan called Strange Fruit a declaration of war, the beginning of the civil rights movement. The song has been covered by a diverse range of artists, including Nina Simone, Jeff Buckley, and Susie Sue. Because of its subject matter and Billy's inimitable delivery of the lyrics, it's a huge undertaking to cover this song. But Jose James did record it.
2: If you're going to do a tribute to Billie Holiday, to me, you have to have strange fruit because if you don't, it's missing the, the whole point of who she was. You know, and back then, the industry was very... You know mafia controlled, there were real serious implications of making decisions like that, and she was like, "I do not care." She risked her entire career and her life on recording that song.
5: Then the sudden smell. Was burning
2: It's so fragile. It's so vulnerable to sing that kind of song that requires an immense kind of James Baldwin level strength (laughs) to not lose yourself, you know, to not feel upset. Because when we were recording it, you know, Trayvon Martin had been killed. And, you know, there are all of these weekly reminders of the injustice and struggle of, of black people in this country. So it felt very relevant and very fresh. It didn't sound like I was pulling an old song from the past. It was like, no, this is happening today.
5: For the sun to rot For the tree
4: Billie Holiday made herself into a musical game changer and one whose repercussions are still strongly felt today.
2: I think she's inescapable, you know, in the same way that John Coltrane is inescapable. There is no saxophone player that has not felt the impact of John Coltrane. And there is no jazz singer that has not felt the impact of Billie Holiday.
4: Holiday's influence can be heard throughout many generations of musicians, from Frank Sinatra to Johnny Mitchell to Georgia Smith.
6: The hardest thing I have learned is I can't help myself. I can't trust my worth. Then I can't trust my worth.
2: I can hear it in SZA. I can hear it in Janelle Monet, I can hear it in Janae Iko I can hear it in Erica Badu. I can hear it in Jill Scott. I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, I can hear it in in Nicki Minaj. Female artists who are completely unafraid to be themselves, to claim their sexuality, and to play in a boys' club, and to shine, which is what she did.
4: Some of Billie Holiday's best work is held within the grooves of her album, Lady Sings the Blues. She is still considered a musical visionary And iconoclast.
2: You know, so I think she has like a a pervasive influence that's beyond just her vocal style. I think she set the tone for black artists to this day. She's an icon and a, a legend, and I'm forever indebted to her.
0: Willow, weep for me. Willow, weep for me. Bend your branches down along the ground.
1: Our story was produced by Colleen Cosmo-Murphy and Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez. The interview clip of Billie Holiday is from The Billie Holiday Experience on YouTube. And you can hear more of Colleen's work at ClassicAlbumSundays.com. As you just heard, addiction was one of Billie Holiday's demons. The singer-songwriter Amy Mann had an important personal relationship with an
7: addict. You know, the drug addict doesn't bear any of the worry about what happens to him. Everybody around the drug addict bears the worry. How Amy Mann tried to understand a friend,
1: a friend who died unnecessarily, by writing a song about him. That's ahead on Studio 360.
5: It's so easy. Studio
1: 360. Earlier in the show, I talked with the composer Eric Whitaker, but he is not the only one changing choral music. Imagine crossing Eric Whitaker with Death Cab for Cutie. You'd get something like the Silver Lake Chorus.
8: I'm Mikey Wells, and I'm the music director. The Silver Lake Chorus is a group of about 20 people, part chorus, part indie band.
1: The Silver Lake Chorus is based in Los Angeles, named after one of the cool easterly neighborhoods. Their founding concept was performing covers of well-known indie rock songs. Then, one of their friends had an idea to go further why not get indie rockers to write original songs for them and make an album out of those commissions? They convinced artists like the Flaming Lips and Justin Vernon and Ben Gibbard to play along, but the last track on the album especially caught my attention.
7: I'm Amy Mann.
1: I'm Paul Bryan. Amy Mann and her producer sent the Silver Lake Chorus a song they wrote called Easy to Die. It was inspired by a friend of Amy's who had overdosed. I was intrigued, so... Amy and Paul and Mikey from the Silver Lake Chorus are going to walk us through how they created it. Beginning, what do you know, with a Billie Holiday reference.
7: I was thinking of that sort of descending chord progression and, and God Bless the Child. It just sounds so beautiful right off the bat, like that that piano sound.
5: It's so
8: My good friend Nick had this janky piano in his studio that he wasn't actually sure the last time it had been tuned, and we loved the sort of ragtag sound of it.
7: I mean, it already sounds like two ghosts singing from beyond the grave.
0: Reap while the other saps dig. That makes me laugh. Yeah. It's calling. <laughs> <laughs> the other
7: saps dig. It's got that atmosphere of like. I'm taking the easy way out. You know, I'm not doing the work like these people.
8: We had no prompt from her. We had no insight into her songwriting process. Really, all the information you need is right in front of you. It's in the song, it's in the lyrics, it's in the melody, and... I think we found it to be a really cool challenge to sort of be given the raw materials and say go. What are you gonna do? We tracked the whole chorus, singing the whole melody and its harmony. We tracked individual people doing it. We tracked all boys, we tracked all girls. And what we ended up doing was starting with two voices, then adding two more for the second verse, and then two more for the first chorus, and so on and so on.
0: That's my favorite one. That's the best of all. It's 180 proof. Here's mud in your eye,
7: and it's all those like alcoholic, drug addict, you know, what should be a good time, jocular statement, but also literally here's mud in your eye, and then I picture like you know throwing dirt on the
5: coffin.
0: this little round where they're singing back and forth with each other. It's really gorgeous. It's beautiful. That's a new addition that I just love.
7: You know, the drug addict doesn't doesn't bear any of the worry about what happens to him. Everybody around the drug addict bears the worry. And the drug addict, it is like, it is, here's mud in your eye. It's all, you know, it's all, it's all good times until it's over.
1: Silver Lake Chorus' latest recording, Not Not by the band Lucius, is out now. And that's it for this week's show. But before we go, I wanted to remind you to follow the show on Twitter. We are at Studio 360 Show. And to tweet at us whenever something we do makes you feel anything whatsoever. We got a bunch of tweets recently about my conversation with the director, Werner Herzog. Jeff Bergman, Twitter handle at Atlas Newsletter, tweeted, Werner Herzog saying the words crazy cat videos on Studio 360 is my happy place. In the same interview, one of my happy places was getting to play the comedian Paul F. Tompkins' parody of Herzog for Herzog, which he had never heard. Tompkins plays Herzog reviewing an L.A. Trader Joe's on Yelp.
5: Though the aisles are wide, it is impossible to avoid physical contact with your fellow shoppers. It is a grotesque parody of the Bazaar at Marrakesh as if dumb animals had been granted only the amount of sentience required to mock humanity. <laughs> That's good stuff. What's his name? Paul F.
1: Tompkins. My congratulations. Studio 360 alumnus Sean Ramasworm, who hosts his own daily podcast, Today Explained, also tweeted at us, I just really want to make sure that everyone heard my radio dad, Kurt Anderson, play Paul F. Tompkins' Werner Herzog impression for real live Werner Herzog on Studio 360 this week. Radio dad. Hmm. Does that involve any financial obligations? And that is it for this week. You can find out more about the music you heard on today's show at studio360.org, where you can also find out exactly how to subscribe to our podcast, which you should do. Pretty please. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team is...
4: Jocelyn Gonzalez.
3: Andrew Adam Newman,
0: Sandra Lopez-Monsalve.
3: Evan Chung.
0: Lauren Hansen.
3: Sam Kim.
0: Zoe Saunders.
3: Tommy Bazarian.
0: Morgan Flannery.
3: And I'm Kurt Anderson.
2: You realize, oh wow, the breath control, the technique, the ideas, the bravery.
1: Thanks very much for listening.
0: PRI Public Radio International.
1: Next time on Studio 360... Constantly you're told, Hollywood wisdom, oh, you know, Latin people don't want to see Latin people. He's a screen star, but his heart's on the stage. I go, oh, really? Who do they want to see? The Norwegians? John Leguizamo's singular Broadway career. That is next time on Studio 360.